Hey, Faith family, good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, today online and uh, encourage you, however you access uh, the Bible, go to Colossians 3 is where we're going to continue our series today called The New Normal. And there's no doubt wherever you are kind of in this world right now, there are new sets, new norms that are coming in to our world of how we live, how we interact with each other, how we can travel, all the different things. I, I've just been thinking about this summer and some of the unique things about this summer. We normally have lots of visitors come up. We normally have different teams out serving in our neighborhood and none of that's happening. I'm having to experience a new normal this summer of what to do and how to do it. We can't meet in person as a church and so there's a new normal with that. But the truth is uh, you may be watching this some other time and some other place in the future and one thing I can guarantee you is you're probably dealing with some kind of new normal then as well. Things always change in our life, uh, whether it's a new job, new relationships, uh, just new circumstances, new surroundings that you're in. The idea that you can control change, that you can keep it from coming into your life is a falsehood. And the truth is what we need to learn to do is how to manage change, not mitigate it, but manage it when it comes into our life. And how do we continue to live consistently through it? And this is what Paul does, the Apostle Paul does in Colossians 3. He's been walking us through in the first couple of chapters about who we are in Christ, this new identity we have, and a new purpose. And now, now how do we live that out? How do we begin to live that out no matter where you're at and what you're dealing, whatever the new normal is? And in the middle of Colossians 3, he gives us his list of six characteristics that we, if we ingrain these in our life, if we, the way he says, if we put these on, if we dress ourselves up in these things, then we can walk through any circumstance and remain consistent in our character, no matter what change comes our way. And so today we're gonna continue this journey. We started a couple weeks ago looking at the first two key concepts that Paul laid out, which was compassion and kindness. And I'll be honest, those, as we studied those two words, they really challenged me on how I'm doing living out compassion and kindness. They were tough teachings. But I hate to say it, but I think today's teaching may even be tougher because this word that we're going to look at, this concept that we're going to look at today out of Colossians 3 is not a word that we love. It's not one that we embrace. It's not one that our culture embraces. It's not one we've been grown we've been growing up and been pouring into our lives saying do this do this do this sometimes we're actually taught the exact opposite so let me read colossians 3 12 through 14 and uh, as i do this word will probably jump out at you and then we'll take this biblical concept and dig into it deeper so colossians 3 12 through 14 says this put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another, and if it, one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So you probably saw the word or heard the word there. The concept we're going to look at today is humility. Humility. And it's also translated humbleness of mind. This idea of living in humility. So how are we going to approach this today? We're going to approach it like we have this whole series. We're going to define this word. Then we're going to look at a, the model of Jesus, of how he embraced 
this because again this is not just Paul picking concepts out of the air and words that you know he's like oh this would be good he's actually looking at the life of Christ and how Jesus lived out these things and made a worldwide impact a lasting impact in the situations that were ever changing and so we're going to look at the model of Jesus and we're going to talk about how to actually apply it kind of bring it into our lives and that's what application does it changes our thoughts changes our hearts and minds and then we're going to learn how to implement it how to live it out how to push it out of our lives and so that's the process we've been on this process we'll do today so let's let's define humility again some translations put it as humbleness of mind and so let's look at this idea of humbleness the original greek word for humbleness here actually brings to mind kind of what we would think is two contrary words that Paul pushes together. And the best way that, that we can describe it, maybe in our English language today, is to have humbleness means to have extravagant modesty. Now, those two words, again, don't seem to fit together. How can you have extravagant modesty? Does that just mean like I'm always saying, oh, I'm, you know, don't don't give me credit for this. And, and that kind of person who's always diminishing self, really trying to just get a compliment from somebody else. That's not what extravagant modesty means. It, it means a modesty that is just constantly there, always being expressed. It, it's who we are. It's how we live our life. And so let me tell you what this means. It's, it's not me saying, you know, oh, I'm nothing it's uh, I, I haven't done anything. Don't please don't give me credit. It's actually on the other side. It's realizing that God, the I am of our world, is everything. It's not saying I'm nothing. It's realizing God is everything. It's not saying, oh, I'm so small. I'm so insignificant. That's not what extravagant modesty is. It's instead realizing how big God is. And here's what's extravagant about this modesty. It's a switch. It's a switch we make in our life. The focus of extravagant modesty moves me from how I view myself. So I'm not saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm small, I'm insignificant. It it shifts how I view myself to instead how I view the completeness of God. So I'm not thinking more about myself, I'm thinking more about God. It's not thinking less of myself, it's just thinking less about myself and more about God, and it brings us to this idea of understanding God's sovereignty, his completeness, that God is ultimate. God is all. He is complete. He doesn't need me. He invites me into relationship. He doesn't task me with things to do. He helps me join him on the journey of what he's accomplishing. There's a sovereignty of this nature of God. That's the extravagant modesty here is going, you know what? I, I realize in the grand scheme of things, when I look at myself to God, I really should never even be looking at myself. I should be focusing on God because he is the complete aspect of things. And I'm even a creation of it. So it's looking at sovereignty. And and here's what this means. This biblical humility isn't just a diminishing of ourselves. And so it's not pushing ourselves down, making ourselves look foolish or inept. Humility isn't false modesty. It's not diminishing ourselves. All right. But secondly, it's also not, certainly not then diminishing God. It's not saying, well, you know, every idea is a good idea. Every voice is the right voice. No, it's Biblical humility is saying our voice is inadequate. God's voice is complete. And then the third thing, it's not not this diminishing of our convictions. 
It's not being willing to, to stand up when when somebody pushes against a conviction or, or, or pushes back and just deferring and being quiet. That's not what biblical humility is, but it's doing it in the right way. Not that I've got to fight for God, but I've just got to reveal God more. And so this sovereignty helps us. It's not diminishing self. It's not diminishing God. It's not diminishing our convictions. This extravagant modesty is not those things. It is embracing the sovereignty, the completeness of God. So it's it's having confidence in the sovereign nature of God. That's what extravagant modesty is. Confidence in the sovereign nature of God. But then it says it's humbleness of mind, right? So what does that mean of mind? There's the passage in Isaiah 55. You probably heard it before, but Isaiah is communicating this as a prophet, God's words to us. And he, he says this, God is saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In just these two verses, God gives us a quick reminder that says your the humbleness of mind, of your mind, is realizing to understand my inadequacies in a couple of areas. I will always have inadequacies in wisdom. I will never have complete wisdom. And I will always have inadequacies in understanding and perspective. I will never have every perspective. And so my humbleness is understanding the completeness, the sovereign nature of God, and the incompleteness of myself. The humbleness of my mind. My mind cannot fathom everything. I can never gain full understanding and full wisdom. The way I've heard it described before, you know, we, we have we know what we know. We know the parts of this life that we know. I've studied, I've gone to college for this, I've read this book, I've you know, do this as a hobby, I've gained this skill. We know what we know. We also know what we don't know. Like there are skills that I see people do that I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I see people paint this beautiful works of art and I'm like, I, I can't do that. Like I try to draw, draw a stick figure and people ask, what is that? So, I mean, we, I see things that I know people know that I don't know those things. But there's a whole section of our life of things that I don't know that I don't know. There's knowledge and wisdom and perspective out there that I'm not even aware of. And so for me to try to act like that my mind has some kind of completeness and understanding, that, you know, that pushes against humbleness. And so again, the humbleness is the com- understanding the confidence in God's completeness and understanding that I have incompleteness, understanding that I am not complete in my understanding. And so that leads us to like biblical hum- humility is then a willingness to submit to authority. To say there's something, there's a God out there and I'm not him. It's also a quick commitment to equality. Just because I know something and somebody else doesn't know something doesn't make me better than them because there's a perspective and understanding they have that I don't have. So we're, we're not competing with each other. We understand we have this equality together, which then would want us to have this desire for unity, right? That the only way I'm going to learn, the only way I'm going to grow is to expand that. So I want to have unity with God and I want to have unity with other people. I want to get your perspective, understand your wisdom and your understanding in this moment. And so let me define humility in this way. And I'm going to tell you, this is a tough definition. It's a tough definition to want to live by. 
but I think it's an honest representation of biblical humility, this extravagant modest modesty and this humbleness of mind that Paul talks about here. And here's how I would describe and define uh, humility. It is being confident enough in God's sovereignty to concede earthly authority without the need to condemn the shortcomings of humanity. There's a lot in that, so let me read it again. It's having a, that I am confident enough in God's sovereignty, in God's completeness, to concede earthly authority, understanding I'm not the ultimate. There are other people that can have authority in my life. There are other people that will be right and I will be wrong. Even when I think I have all knowledge, there's a perspective I don't understand. So I will concede earthly authority without the need to then condemn the shortcomings of humanity. To go, you may be right here, but let me tell you the other five times that you're wrong and to push back and condemn them for that. Because guess what? They can do the same to me. They can condemn me because I don't have complete understanding and wisdom as well. Confident enough in God's sovereignty to concede earthly authority without the need to condemn the shortcomings of humanity. All right, that's hard. It's, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. Like I, it's not a definition that I want to jump onto and say, hey, let's just go do that this week. I would much rather, you know, share my confidence with myself and God, condemn others, and I never want to concede, never want to give up space. You know, once I've taken ground, I don't want to give it back. I want to keep pushing forward. And that's what we're taught. That's what we're challenged with, right? But it's not what Jesus did. The one who had ultimate authority in this world, the one who demonstrated complete wisdom and understanding, he even modeled this for us. And so let's look at how he did this to learn the power of humility in Jesus. And what we're going to learn that there is a power, there's an extreme power to humility. And the best way that I can say, and we're going to see this in Jesus's uh, examples here, is humility is an extinguisher. It extinguishes certain things. When certain things come into contact with humility, they are diminished and defeated. And it is a powerful, powerful tool in your life if you want to deal with these certain things that we're going to look at that Jesus did. And so let's start in John 13. We're going to look at the kind of Jesus's journey from his last Passover meal with the disciples to the crucifixion in three places that he demonstrated humility and what they extinguished in his uh, in the, in that surroundings. And so John 13, I'm going to give you the background here and then we'll look at one verse. But Jesus, uh, they're sitting down around the Passover meal. Jesus knows he's about to be uh, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. He's about to go through an incredible journey to the cross. It's it's weighing heavily on him. And they're sitting in the midst of Jerusalem, one of the more powerful cities during that time, especially in Jewish culture. They're having dinner, a Passover dinner, one of the highlights of the Jewish year. And here's what the disciples are doing. They're arguing about who's the greatest around the table. Like, which one of us? They're each kind of, well, let me, let me tell you about me. Let me tell you why I am the great. When, when this man over here becomes king when he takes over. Let me tell you why I should be the number two in charge. And this is going on around the table while Jesus is contemplating the, the death that is coming to him. And I don't know about you, but in that moment, I'd have been like 
I have taken the, the bread or the wine bottle and I would have thrown it at these guys. I'd be like, you idiots. But instead, Jesus does something completely different. He gets up, says he straps a towel around his waist, and he takes a basin and a towel, and he goes around and washes each of the disciples' feet. And here's what Jesus did here to model humility. He willingly took the role of a slave. Jesus took on a job of the lowest slave in the house, the bottom of the to-do list. Nobody came in during the day in the household staff and said, hey, let me, let me be the foot washer today. It reminds me, I, I worked at a fast food restaurant growing up and uh, like you, when you were first hired, there was no doubt at closing time what your job was. You cleaned the restrooms. Everybody that had more seniority, you got to pick the other closing jobs. And your job was always, if you were the low man on the totem pole, was cleaning the restrooms at the end of the day. Not a pretty job. Not something that you desire. But it would have literally been like Jesus coming in and saying, I'm the, I'm the boss, I'm the one with the most seniority. I'm going to go clean the bathrooms. Willingly. He willingly took on this role. Jesus didn't explain what he was doing. He didn't tell the disciples, Here's, let me give you an object lesson. He just did it. And it would have been culturally shocking at that moment. So why did Jesus do this? Why show humility this way? Like, is he, is he just like trying to diminish himself? No. Why show humility this way? Because this is what he wanted to extinguish. Jesus wanted to extinguish the discord that was happening among the disciples. The discord that was happening around that table in relationships. The one-upsmanship. You, me, me, you, and back and forth. Back. The discord, the disunity that was happening in that room. Jesus came and said, let me bring you back together. And after he did this, he talked to the disciples. And in John 13, 34, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You are to love one another. How did he love them? By serving them. Taking on, willfully taking on the role of a slave. He showed humility, set aside his earthly authority, and he served in the lowest role possible. He chose that. It's crazy. It's unheard of in our culture today. When you do see it, it's shocking just as it would have been to the disciples. But in that shock came a change in those disciples' hearts that I don't think Jesus could have impacted any other way besides using humility as this powerful tool to extinguish discord. But he doesn't stop there. If you jump over to Luke 22, we, we find them there a couple hours later, they've finished dinner. They've talked about a lot of different things. Jesus has kind of put them on edge saying, you know, he's going to be betrayed by one of them tonight. And they go to the garden to pray. And again, everybody's kind of on edge. They've, they've probably been hyped up all day. And, and now there comes this moment in the garden where Judas is leading the chief priest and others, soldiers and people from the town are coming at it. It says they come out with him with clubs and to, to like they're getting ready to have a fight with Jesus. And maybe if you're the disciples, the other disciples are like, all right, this is it. This is go time. Like, scene is set. It's kind of like West Side Story, right? You've got these two rival gangs, you know, ready to go at it. And they're coming together. And, like, it's going to go down. This side versus this side. 
clean, we're going to have some clear winners and clear losers at the end of this. We'll be able to tally the score and figure it out. And here's what Peter does probably taken, he takes the lead coming off this bold proclamation he made at dinner where he said, you know, I'll never leave you. I will fight. I'll go wherever. And Peter takes the lead and he pulls out a sword as they're coming and he chops off one of the guy's ears, just chops it off. And you, you know, it's like a, it's like a movie scene, right? You're everybody's tense. Everybody, who's going to make the first move? And as soon as Peter does, you, you imagine like, all right, and then the, rush in. Everybody, the fight starts. But Jesus does something different here. Jesus doesn't take up the fight. Instead, he took, puts an end to it completely and turns himself in. And here's what he does. He, uh, I love, Peter chops off the ear in Luke twenty-two fifty-one. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus said, no more of this. No more. Stop. It's not going any further. And then he touched the guy's ear and healed him. I don't know about you, but if I'd have been on the other side at that point, like Judas's side, I'd have been like, oh no. Like where, if, if that dude can heal that guy's ear, what else can he do? Like we might be in trouble. But then Jesus says, come do what you've come to do. Take me, take me away. And here's what, he willingly took on the role here of a victim. Jesus willingly took on the role of a victim. He said, honestly, I'm not guilty. You have no right to take me. You, you come at me at a secret time. I've been betrayed by one of my friends. I've been victimized here. But he, instead of fighting back, he willingly took on that role, role of a victim and showed humility that way. Why? Why show humility this way? Again, he's going to extinguish something here. Something I think we all deal with, not just discord in relationships that he did in the, in the upper room there, but to show humility this way, Jesus extinguishes division, complete division. Like it's already, it's discord is like, oh, we may be moving there. Division is we are already on the opposite sides. All I can look at you is see is what's different about you. You look at me and see what's different about me. We are divided. We're ready to fight. Like, if you put us in the same room, we're going to end up fighting. Like, you probably got a family member like that. You go home for holiday dinner, and if you two end up sitting next to each other in some conversation about politics or worldview on this or that pops up, you're going to fight. You know it. It's going to happen. You have division. But when Jesus hit that moment, he said, no more of this. No more. Not going to happen. And in that moment, even though... He was taken away. The division began to crumble. We're gonna, you're going to see even later on, some of those who came to arrest him eventually became followers of his. One of the guards that was at the foot of the cross eventually looks up in Jesus and goes, truly was the Messiah. He began to blur the lines of division because of humility. Humility. But it doesn't end there because then in Luke chapter 3, we find the culmination of this story, right? Jesus has been arrested, he's been beaten, tortured, and now he's hung on a cross, not guilty of anything, paying the ultimate price, the ultimate punishment for crimes that they had never been convicted of. He was railroaded an unjust trial, right? But yet he willingly goes to the cross, and here's what he does. In that moment, he willingly takes on the role of a martyr, 
right? So he willingly first took on the role of a slave, then a victim, and now he's taken on a martyr, paying the full ultimate price. I don't know about you, but he, he's on this cross. He knows he's hearing, coming close to physical death. They can feel it. I don't know about you, but if I had the power of God surging through me and could I, you know, willed at, at will toward anything I wanted, I might take one last chance to be like, all right, as I die, as I breathe my last, shoot lightning out of my eyes and my fingertips and kill you all. Like, you know, like the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just, you know, I'm going to show you just how powerful I am. Even in my dying, I'm going to show you how powerful. But he not only restrains himself, but then he refers himself to the Father and says, whatever you want to do. Basically, the, the ultimate show of humility here is, is the, him understanding the impact of his life was not about his mere presence in people's life, but the purpose of why he lived, the purpose of being in somebody's life. And so why, why show humility this way? Taking on the role of a martyr, taking the full payment for something that maybe you didn't even do. Why show humility this way? Because again, it's a powerful tool because it extinguishes debt in our life. You owe me, I owe you. I did this for you, now you gotta do this for me and we never have peace together. You know what kills most relationships of this idea of unpaid debt? I did something for you and you didn't acknowledge it. You didn't do anything back for me. You're taking me for granted. And now I'm going to hold that bitterness and anger. And the longer I hold it, the more interest that debt occurs. And you can never pay it back. We'll never have peace again. And in Luke 23, 46, Jesus, as he's dying, he says this. Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. He didn't call out in anger in his last breath, in his last time in somebody's life. He didn't call out, hurl insults. He committed himself to the Father, to the ultimate purpose, to remember the confidence of God's sovereignty. He leaned back into that. He said, God, I'm leaning into your sovereignty, ultimate sovereignty, trusting it. While I will concede authority and I'm not going to take on the role of condemning humanity, but I will have confidence in your authority. That's what he did to extinguish this ultimate debt, this relational debt between man and God. In that moment, Jesus did the work that could not be accomplished any other way. He erased the debt of sin in our life so that you and I could have a relationship with God. So that you and I, through the forgiveness of sins, can now be joint heirs with the kingdom of God. That debt could not be paid any other way except for in humility of Jesus willingly taking on the role of a victim, of a, of a slave first, of a victim second, and then of ultimately of a martyr. And it's a model you and I, as we become Christ followers, we get to emulate. And you mean like... I don't, I, is that what I signed up for? I thought I just signed up for eternity in heaven one day. But we actually, as followers of Christ, you, you see that we become ambassadors of Christ. We become peacemakers. We become trophies of his grace. These are all examples of what we become as followers of Christ in scripture. And it's really showing this humility of extinguishing discord. When we start to feel that uneasiness, we're like, all right, 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna show humbleness. When we see true division already, I'm gonna show humbleness. When there seems to be a debt that's too much to be paid, I'm gonna show humbleness in that moment. So how do we apply this to our lives? That's a lot going on. And just as we've had to constrain our thoughts before and contend with our own desires, there's, a, there's another application that I'm gonna give you here for humility, and it's simply this. You have to challenge your immediate response. Because when you get in times of discord, division, or you feel like somebody's in debt to you, your immediate response is not gonna be humbleness. It's gonna be repayment, retribution, revenge, right? I mean, we wanna push back on those things. We probably would have all reacted differently in each of these situations that Jesus was in. Disciples saying, who's the greatest? I am. Maybe I would have responded that way if I was Jesus. Or, you know, you think you have the power to arrest me? Bring it on. Don't you know who I am? Let me show you my power. Or even right there on the cross, you think you can defeat me and kill me? Let me show you my full power. Let me, you think you got me, but there's no way. Push back. And so there's some realizations for us to challenge our immediate response in our life and to actually then begin to have a response of humbleness, we have to have some realizations in our life. And these are tough. And the first realization we have to this, we have to realize that the loss of position does not determine your importance. Just because you might lose position does not determine your importance. As a matter of fact, it can sometimes elevate it, right? I mean, Jesus took the position of a slave he took it. He willfully took it. It did not diminish, though, his importance and his purpose of what he was doing, who he actually was. Just because you might lose position in somebody's life or you lose an, an argument and you, you seem might be humiliated. Humiliation is not the same as being humbled. We can talk about that at a different time, but it, it's maybe we've lost some kind of position that does not mean that determines your importance. And this is what we often think. I can't lose this because if I do, I'm going to lose position. I'm going to lose my importance. I'm going down the ladder. It's not what Jesus modeled here. So we have to have this realization that the loss of position does not determine your importance. But secondly, the loss of power does not determine your impact. Right? Jesus kind of lost power. He gave up his freedom. He was erected, arrested as a victim. He was taken in. His freedom was taken away. And just because of that loss of power did not determine the impact that he could make. He continued to live with consistency, show kindness, compassion, patience, meekness, and love to others. He had this humble spirit that actually elevated his impact. And finally, the third realization you have to have is this, is realize that the loss of presence does not determine your influence. Sometimes just because somebody cuts you out of their life or there's anger and bitterness in somebody's life. And if you're pushing back with anger and bitterness, yeah, you're going to lose influence in that person's life. But if they're pushing at you with anger and bitterness and you come at it with humbleness and forgiveness and a willingness to erase and extinguish that debt, it could actually elevate your influence in their life. So what Jesus did, even when his presence, physical presence in this earth diminished, that's when his ultimate influence showed up. And this is, let me tell you why, this is difficult thinking and difficult realizations because 
It has been ingrained to us. More position, more importance. More power, more impact. More presence, when I'm fully present, that's when I can fully influence. I have to be there, I have to be at every decision, every conversation. Position, power, presence, importance, impact, influence, climbing the ladder, climbing the ladder, and I can't go down. But I wanna challenge you, the realization here is this. When you approach these things with humbleness, when you lose position, power, or presence, and you're humble about it, when you have extravagant modesty and look toward the with confidence toward God and realize you don't have ultimate perspective and understanding, you actually can increase your importance and your impact and your influence. So that's how we apply it. That's how we can internalize this idea to, to think about, even just to begin to think about being humble, if not then beginning to live it out and let it show in our lives. But ultimately, how do we implement this? We, we've talked about last week, walking softly and carrying a big stick of kindness, being ready, bringing calmness in, but being ready to do big acts of kindness. We talked two weeks ago of compassion, of wearing your heart on your sleeve, of being willing, to, your, the compassion being the closest thing to your hand so that you're ready to act with compassion. And I think this one, the way we implement this in our life is you have to learn to curb your enthusiasm. Curb your enthusiasm about yourself. To implement this in life, you have to curb this enthusiasm that the world is all about you, that even your life is all about you, that your family and your friends revolve around you, that work revolves around you, school revolves around you, this group revolves around you, this church revolves around you. You have to curb your enthusiasm about yourself. And how do we do that? We have to extinguish things like Jesus did. When we see discord come in, we have to extinguish discord in our life. When we start to feel that uneasiness, extinguish discord in your life by pursuing opportunities to serve others. Saying, so when I start to feel that, instead of moving toward division, I start to move toward serving. I have to extinguish discord by pursuing serving. But second, when you when you have this discord leads to division or disdain for other people in your life, and you start looking at someone, you be like, I just don't like that person. I can't be around that person. Like you are, you're wanting to push in the opposite direction to, to curb your enthusiasm. You have to extinguish this division and disdain in your life by pursuing opportunities to surrender to others. To be like, all right, I'm gonna give you that point. I'll give you that argument. Yes, I will surrender. I will find the moments when I can surrender to them. That's what Jesus did, right? Held the guy's ear, showing all his power, but he said, hey, come take me. I'm yours. You can have this one, because he, he saw the bigger picture and perspective. And so, when we have those moments of division, we have to find opportunities to surrender to others. Where can they win? And then the third thing, final thing is this. We have to learn to extinguish debts in our life. When we have these moments where we feel like there's too much bitterness and pain and anger for us to ever repay and get back, we have to learn to extinguish debts in your life by pursuing opportunities to sacrifice for others, to sacrifice. Jesus ultimately gave up his life. And sometimes we're gonna be called to give up big things in our life to be able to overcome the debts and relationships. You know, maybe that's with a spouse that it just keeps, it seems like we keep adding to the balance 
of each other, of what we owe each other. And instead of sacrificing and extinguishing that debt, we just keep piling up the charges. Maybe you're in that with a child where it just seems like you're back and forth, back and forth. Nobody's sacrificing. Everybody's trying to win. Look, you're never going to get back to peace in a relationship if you're not willing to extinguish debts, division, and discord with sacrifice, surrender, and serving. That's how we implement. Curb your enthusiasm about yourself and develop an enthusiasm for other people. I don't know about you. Humbleness is hard. It's difficult. It's not impossible, though. Jesus gave us a beautiful example to follow. And his spirit within us gives us the power to walk in humbleness. And it is my prayer for you this week that you would allow humbleness to begin to grow in your life. Maybe you can't get to where you can extinguish every debt this week. But would you start by allowing the seed of humbleness to begin to produce some fruit in your life this week. Put on this week humbleness as you walk through this world.